Well, hello there. It's Jeremy Myers, and you are listening to the One Verse Podcast. We're doing a series right now based on my forthcoming book titled What is Hell? And we're looking at several key words about hell and several key passages that supposedly teach about hell. Well, they do teach about hell, but uh, maybe not in the way that you think or the way you have heard. Today's podcast episode will be we will be looking at Matthew 25, 41. Uh, which Jesus talks about sending people to the goats anyway, in the parable of the sheep and goats, to everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. What is that about? I mentioned in last week's podcast episode when we looked at Matthew 18, verses 8 and 9, that we would be discussing everlasting fire. And so if you were waiting for that, here it is. Now, before we get into the study, If you enjoy these podcasts, if you enjoy some of the other things I put out for free on my blog, one of the ways that you can encourage and support the work that I do is by buying some of my books on Amazon. In a way, you are sort of the sponsor for this podcast. Uh, When you buy books, it helps support the work I do. So uh, if, if I have, I don't know, about a dozen books available on Amazon, you can sort of pick what themes or, or topics that you like. And uh, that will really help. If you really want to support the podcast, you can buy multiple copies of the paperback. Give them away as friends. Now, if you've already bought all my books, (laughs) how about leaving a review? Uh, That also is encouraging and helpful for me as well. Also, it helps other people know whether or not they want to read the books. So thank you in any way that you support this work and the podcast. I really, really do appreciate it so very much. And uh, by the way, you probably noticed there's no intro music. I sort of indicated that if you like this new format, I'm not going to have any outro music at the end either, then uh, let me know. But if you miss the music, let me know that as well so that I can decide whether to include it in the future. Now, this is going to be a slightly longer podcast than normal because we're dealing with such a long and important text. Plus, there's all this background material that we need to understand in order to properly see what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 25, 41. Let's begin, though, by reading the verse, sort of the primary verse we will be looking at today. It is Matthew 25, 41, and Jesus says this, Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Okay, this is one of the more difficult passages to understand when it comes to the concept of everlasting fire in the Bible. However, it becomes a little bit more, well, not a little bit more, a lot more easy to understand, a lot easier to understand when we study it in its context. First five rules of Bible study— Context, 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 context. And that is definitely the case with Matthew 25, 41. The first thing we need to recognize is something that I did point out in numerous previous podcast episodes. And basically, it is the concept that hell is a kingdom on this earth, which is diametrically opposed to the kingdom of God, which is also on this earth. Right? Lots of people think the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is this afterlife experience that you know we will only go to when we die or something like that. But that's not what the Bible teaches about the kingdom of God. Jesus came to inaugurate and initiate 
to bring the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, through his life and death and resurrection, and he was successful in that. Uh, However, the kingdom of God is not the only way of living here on this earth, the only type of kingdom that is attempting to rule and reign. There's also the kingdom of hell, and uh, the two are polar opposites, exact opposites of each other. So everything that the kingdom of heaven is and is supposed to accomplish, the kingdom of hell tries to accomplish the opposite, all right? And uh, so so that's going to help us initially understand what Jesus is talking about when he talks about the fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And then in uh, Matthew 25, 34, the kingdom prepared for you, all right? So the kingdom prepared for you, that's for you and me, is set in contrast to the fire prepared for the devil and his angels. In other words, we have this kingdom of hell versus kingdom of heaven concept going on here in Matthew 24 and 25. Now, with that in mind, though, let us pull further back and sort of understand the overall broad context of Matthew 24 and 25. These two chapters in the Gospel of Matthew are known as the Olivet Discourse. They go up to the Mount of Olives. This is before Jesus is arrested and crucified, and he sort of gives them some last teachings, okay? And uh, the whole entire Olivet Discourse must be understood as Jesus' answer to two questions from the disciples. Now, they had just come from the temple in Jerusalem, where Jesus had looked at it, this beautiful, magnificent temple structure, and said that uh, the whole thing would be destroyed. Now, he was primarily talking about his body, but he was also talking about the building itself and everything that it represented. And uh, Jesus was, he wasn't impressed with religious buildings. Sometimes you and I are, aren't we? Uh, we? We look at these amazing cathedrals and buildings and giant church buildings and, oh, wow, it's so amazing. God is so active here. But Jesus, no, God, God isn't really found in a building. All right, uh, but not wasn't just the religious buildings; it was also the religious establishment, all the priesthood and the sacrificial system and the ceremonies. All of that didn't impress Jesus either. And so, one of the reasons that Jesus performed his ministry the way he did is to show that we don't need any of that. You don't need the buildings. You don't need the clergy. You don't need the priesthood. You don't need the sacrificial system. We are the people of God, all on our own, without all of those trappings that often just get in the way. Okay. Anyway. Uh, You can tell that's a little bit of soapbox of mine. I've written a whole series of books on that very topic. Uh, It's the Close Your Church for Good series of books, if you are interested. Anyway, Jesus says the temple is going to be destroyed and everything with it. And so the disciples ask two questions. They want to know, this is uh, Matthew 24, 3, when these events will take place and what will be the signs of his coming? What will be the signs of the end of the age when they take place? They want to know when it's going to happen and how they know. All right. Now, at this point, by the way, remember that the disciples haven't yet grasped the fact that Jesus is going to die on the cross. All right. Uh, And he has told them, but they just think he's speaking in parables or riddles or something. They don't don't think he's, he's literally telling them that he's going to die. So when they ask about the signs of his coming... They are not referring to the second coming of Jesus. Lots of people today make that mistake. They, Lots of people today, because we know Jesus died and rose again, 
then we read Matthew 24, 3 and say, oh, well, we are looking for his second coming. Therefore, the disciples must be asking about his second coming also. But they weren't. They were asking about when Jesus would come into his throne in Jerusalem, when he was going to throw off the Roman occupation. A lot of them were following him, just hoping, waiting for that to happen. Judas, in fact, uh, betrayed Jesus as a way to try to get Jesus to throw off the Roman rule. All right? Uh, Judas was was convinced that Jesus was going to defend himself against Romans, the Romans, when they came and arrested him, and that would start the revolution, which would eventually culminate in the Jews and and then the, the, the Jerusalem becoming, gaining their rightful place among the world overthrowing Roman occupation, okay? So so that's why they're asking these questions here. They want to know, hey, Jesus, when are you going to come into your throne? We've been following you for three years, Jesus, and we like what you're saying. We see your power and your miracles. Uh, We're getting a little impatient. When is this going to happen? And what will be the signs that will tell us, hey, take up your swords. It's about time to start the revolution. So when Jesus sets out to answer... He's trying to, yes, answer their questions, but also correct their thinking, all right? He needs them to see that his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is opposed to and opposite to the kingdom of Rome, the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of hell. And the ways of the kingdom of heaven are not the ways of the kingdom of Rome. Now, the kingdom will come. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of Jesus will come and is coming and is at hand, but it will not look like the way the disciples think it will look. Okay, so Jesus has that goal in mind in the Olivet Discourse. Yes, he's going to answer their questions, but he also wants them to see, to learn what the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God actually looks like. All right. And so to sort of accomplish all of this. Oh, and by the way, Jesus says he, he does give the signs, and then he says, and all these things will take place within one generation. Now, lots of people try to go through great hermeneutical contortions, Bible study, twists and turns, try to get one generation to mean 2,000 years or more. But uh, those efforts are doomed from the start. One generation basically means 40 years in the Bible. And so by the time Jesus said this, what he predicts needs to have happened within 40 years. And so when we take Jesus' words at face value, probably the best way to understand Jesus' words is the signs that he describes in Matthew 24, uh, 4 through 51, really took place, were fulfilled with the destruction of Jerusalem about 40 years later in AD 70. All right? Jesus was speaking these words probably around AD 33, 32, somewhere in there. So roughly 40 years later, 38, 39 years later, Jerusalem is destroyed in the words with one generation, and um, the, the Jesus' words, prophecies here are fulfilled. So we're not waiting for these things to happen anymore. The kingdom has come, the kingdom has arrived, and the proof of it is the destruction of Jerusalem, just as Jesus predicted and promised, okay? Now, based on this... Jesus goes on and says, in light of this, okay, he gives them two options to live, two ways to live. All right, the kingdom of heaven is coming. Here's how you can live 
Here's the two ways, the two choices that you can live. And this is at the end of Matthew 24, verses 45 to 51. He gives them two options. He says, basically, you can, number one, look for my coming and then lead, live in a way of love and service to others as a result, or you can reject and stop looking for my coming in this way and so live selfishly and violent towards others, violently towards others. Those are the two choices. Again, it comes down to the kingdom of heaven versus the kingdom of hell. You can live in the kingdom of heaven, the, the rule and reign of God on earth through our lives, through the church, or you can continue to live in the kingdom of darkness and sin and death and violence, which is the way of Satan and uh, the kingdom of hell. All right? So those are the only two options, and Jesus presents those at the end of Matthew chapter 24. Again, remember, he's not referring to his second coming. He's referring to the coming of his kingdom in power and glory as it will spread over the face of the earth. So Jesus wants his followers to choose whether they will join him and spread the kingdom over the earth, or if they're saying, no, I don't think Jesus is right on this, Uh, I am going to live according to the values and principles of this world. All right? And that basically closes chapter 24. He's answered their questions. He's he's sort of corrected their thinking about the kingdom of God. And then he's given them the two options, the ways of living. This transitions us then into Matthew chapter 25. In this chapter, we have three parables. All right? And the three parables of Matthew 25 compare and contrast the two kingdoms and the two options that Jesus has just talked about in Matthew chapter 24. All right, That parable at the end of Matthew 24 contrasts the believing and wise foolish with the unbelieving, I'm sorry, the believing and wise servants with the unbelieving and foolish servants. Okay? Uh, Because there's these two options, two ways of living. Now, the three parables in Matthew 25 follow the similar theme, follow these similar contrasts. Uh, The followers of Jesus are to live in a constant state of readiness and work to advance the kingdom while they wait. And that's what Jesus is teaching in these parables. The three parables basically reveal what this new kingdom is like and is not like, and how the followers of Jesus can participate in its coming through their beliefs and behaviors. All right? It shows the two ways of living and calls us to make a choice to live one way or the other. Now, here's what's interesting. Lots of people think that all three parables describe life in the kingdom of God, but they don't. It's the first and the last parables describe truths related to the kingdom of God. The middle parable, the parable of the talents, describes truths related to the kingdom of hell or the kingdom of Rome, the kingdom of Caesar. All right? And if you look in your Bible translations, well, we'll talk about kingdom of talents more when we get there. Let's start with the first parable, uh, the parable of the wise and foolish bridesmaids, sometimes also called the wise and foolish virgins. All right, so Jesus describes the kingdom of heaven with the parable of the wise and foolish bridesmaids. This is verses 1 through 13. And again, what's the point of this? To show these two groups, one that was waiting for the coming of the bridegroom, and one group was not. One group was ready and lived in light of their readiness, and the other wasn't. 
And so therefore, when the bride comes, it is those, the bridegroom comes, it is those who are ready, waiting, expectant, that they get to participate in the celebration. All right? Now, uh, this parable is not about who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. It's about participating in the wedding celebration, participating in the party when the kingdom begins, when the kingdom arrives. And you can go look and see in the book of Acts, for example, how when the kingdom began to spread upon the face of the earth, not everybody was involved in spreading it upon the face of the earth. Only those who were ready, prepared, and expectant all right, uh, were allowed to participate, were called, invited to the party of spreading the kingdom upon the face of the earth. All right? So, and this doesn't mean the people who weren't involved, that they are headed to hell or eternal punishment or going to scream forever in agony for all, forever and ever and flames of lake of fire, anything like that. People can have eternal life and miss out on the party of life in the kingdom of God. Absolutely they can. Many people do miss out on the party because they're living for themselves, living according to the values of the kingdom of Rome, the kingdoms of this world. All right, just as Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5.10, whether we watch or sleep, we will live together with him, right? So it's not, uh, this passage, this parable is not about who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. It's about how to participate in life of the party of the kingdom of God. Now, the parable of the talents is next. And again, lots of people think that this is about life in the kingdom of God as well. In fact, many of your English Bible translations will even begin this parable with Jesus saying, now, the kingdom of heaven is like. The thing is, if you have a good, decent Bible translation, it will put those words in italics, meaning they're not in the Greek. Jesus didn't say them. Uh, But our English Bible translations often add the words anyway, Because they think, well, the first and third parable about the kingdom of heaven, so maybe this second one, this middle one, is also. So they add the words, kingdom of heaven is like, and as a result, (laughs) the parable has become widely misunderstood. Many people assume, as a result of this misunderstanding, that this, this Lord who goes to a far kingdom and then a far country and then return, well, this must represent Jesus because he leaves and then he comes back. And then at the judgment seat of Christ or something like that, he calls all the Christians whom he gave spiritual gifts and talents to, and he blesses those who did well with their spiritual gifts. And then, you know, he is sad or upset, uh, disciplines, whatever, The punishes even the third servant who did nothing with his talent. And so, so people say, well, that's what this is about. But that's a huge misunderstanding of the text. Jesus didn't say, was not describing that the, what the kingdom of heaven was like. In fact, he's contrasting. All right? Uh, he has just given a parable of what the kingdom of heaven is like and how to live in light of it. And now he is saying, here's what the kingdom of Caesar, the kingdom of Rome, the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of hell is like. <laughs> and if you want to go that way, how you can live in light of it and what will happen to you if you don't. All right, there is a warning here about what will happen to followers of Jesus who do not live according to the values of the kingdom of this world. All right, and so the first two servants represent people who live in light of the values of the kingdom of this world. That third servant is actually representing a Christian, a faithful follower of Jesus who does not live according to the values of the kingdom of this world. And as a result, 
he is judged and condemned by the rulers of this world because we don't adopt their values, we don't adopt their mindset, we don't live in light of their rules and ways. Now, there's lots of lines of evidence to support this. I have talked about this in a previous podcast. I've also written about it at various places on my blog at redeeminggod.com. Bottom line is you need to understand some history and culture to help you understand the parable of the talents. First of all, this Lord who goes to a far country to become a king and then returns. <laughs> Look, you don't typically go off to a far country to become a king, do you? No, <laughs> you become a king because you were born to a king. Well, what happened in the days of uh, prior to Jesus and uh, the apostles was Herod. <laughs> he wasn't an Israelite. Uh, he was an Idumean, and he wanted to become king. So he traveled down to Rome and spoke with Caesar and agreed to some deal with Caesar. And so Caesar said, fine, you can be king of Israel. <laughs> and so King Herod is this Lord who goes to a far country and becomes a king and comes back. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that, is, that is not how you become king, and that is not how Jesus became king. And uh, but it is how Herod, and so that is who the list the hearers of this parable would have thought about about this false, fake king Herod sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. Second, uh, the Mediterranean world at that time was guided by the cultural values of honor and shame. All right, we're not guided that way in our modern Western culture. We are guided by materialism. In our society and culture, we think he who dies with the most toys wins, right? And so, so we, we strive after money and wealth and houses and cars and nice clothes and toys and possessions, those sorts of things, all right? Uh, and so that, that, again, is one of the reasons that we read this parable wrongly, because the first two servants in the story end up with more stuff. And we value more stuff in our society. And so we say, oh, they're the good guys. But it was exactly the opposite in the Mediterranean world. The Mediterranean world was an honor-shame culture. They were not a materialistic culture. And an honor-shame culture typically had a zero-sum economy, which means that there's only so many, so much material possessions to go around. And ideally, it should be divided equally among everybody. What that means, though, is that if one person gains more, then they only do that by causing other people to have less. In other words, if you get more, it's only because you stole it or cheated it, cheated someone out of it who, 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 who should have had it instead of you. And so that was very shameful behavior. If you get more, if you become rich, you did it by stealing from your countrymen, from your brethren. And uh, it was greedy. It was shameful behavior. It was not the way you were supposed to live. Nevertheless, some people did, such as kings and tax collectors and others. All right. And so that helps us also understand what is going on here. So the kings often operate this way. They often take more for themselves and have banquets and collect taxes, all sorts of things. And so it's shameful behavior, but what can you do about it? Because they're the king. They have the soldiers to, to protect their shameful behavior. And then they also claim divine right to do this. We're God. You, you know, oftentimes Caesar thought he was God or something. And so you had to do it. You had no choice. Nevertheless, it was shameful for the person to do it. But how do you 
gain clout and how do you become important in a society and culture like that? Well, you become friends with those who steal from others. And how do you do that? Well, you steal from others also. That's what these first two servants do. And as a result, they are praised and given positions of honor and privilege in this king's, in, in the rule of this kingdom. This third servant, though, what does he do? He's given one talent and he returns one talent. He behaves honorably. Uh, but does the king like what the servant has done? No. And so he is condemned, he is judged, he is cast out to where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. What does that mean? It means he doesn't get to participate in the party of the kingdom of this world. He gets overlooked, neglected, despised by those with power, those with money. He misses out on their party. You see the similarities now between the ending of this parable and the ending of the previous parable with the ten bridesmaids. Jesus is saying both kingdoms, the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of heaven, both have parties. <laughs> and you can pick which party you participate in. All right? You can participate in the party of the kingdom of heaven, or you can participate in the party of the kingdom of this world. You cannot participate in both. You must pick and choose. Just goes back to these two choices Jesus was talking about in Matthew chapter 24. Are you going to live according to the ways of the kingdom of this world or according to the ways of the kingdom of heaven? All right, so that's the second parable. The third parable then now wraps it all together, circles back around, returns to the concept of these two choices and the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of this world. And this is the parable of the sheep and the goats. All right, this is the final parable. And Jesus is basically saying, look, even though you might be despised by the kingdoms of this world, right? Uh, don't worry about that because God will despise and reject them, right? And if you are despised by the kingdoms of this world, don't worry. God will not despise or reject you, all right? The, the values and behaviors of the two kingdoms, remember, are diametrically opposed to each other. And so that's what the parable of the sheep and the goats represent. You're going to make your choices, but then God is going to be the one who finally decides who gets blessed and honored and who does not. All right, so in this final parable, Jesus reveals that he, he's the shepherd king, the son of man, shepherd king. He is the one who ultimately decides which of his servants worked for the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth, of this earth. Uh, the parable of talent showed that the kingdoms of earth praises those who steal from the poor and give to the rich. The parable of the sheep and the goats reveals that the kingdom of heaven works the opposite way. Jesus, the shepherd king, he is the king, the lord of the kingdom of heaven, and he values the poor and the needy and gives praise and honor to those who take care of the poor and the needy rather than stealing from the poor and the needy the way those two servants did in the parable of the talents. All right, so again, this third parable ties the two preceding parables together, ties the teachings of Matthew 24 all together, and brings it all around to a nice fitting conclusion about the two choices we face and how God, how Jesus is the ultimate arbiter, the ultimate decider, the ultimate uh, giver of consequences based on how we live. Okay? 
And uh, by the way, who are the nations then? Lots of people go to great lengths trying to figure out who the nations are. I've heard people say, well, it's only Christians, so therefore we only need to take care of the poor and needy Christians. Other people say, no, it's it's only, uh, you know, Jesus was a Jew, and so he was only referring to Jewish people, and so our responsibility is to help take care of and protect God's you know, uh, the, the biological brethren of Jesus, which would be Jewish people, least of these my brethren, and so on. So we need to bless Israel and so on. And we do. I think that's important, but um, for other reasons rather than what Jesus is saying in this parable. The bottom line is this. I find it really interesting that many people try to go through, again, all these weird contortions in this parable so that they don't actually have to do what Jesus is instructing us to do in the parable. (laughs) The parable is telling us to take care of the poor and needy. And if we say, well, it's only the poor and needy of Israel, or it's only the poor and needy of the church, or it's only the poor and needy in our own family, then what we're doing is giving ourselves an out, a way out of taking care of the poor and needy in the rest of the world, even if they are not Christians, even if they are of another country, even if they are of another religion. Jesus is saying, take care of the poor and needy wherever they are found, whatever country, whatever nationality, and whatever religion they might be part of. All right? And then he's going to come together and he's going to decide who actually did that and who did not. All right? And so we don't necessarily need to try to define who the nations are and so on. It's just everybody who's poor and needy wherever they might be found. Okay, all of that background information then brings us to Matthew 25, 41. The description of the everlasting fire. Jesus says that those who take care, I'm sorry, those who do not take care of the poor and needy will go away into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And uh, in verse 46, this is described also as everlasting punishment. All right, so everlasting fire, everlasting punishment. Uh, The two terms sort of describe each other. So let's start with that second one first, everlasting punishment. That will help us understand fire. All right, the Greek word for punishment there is kolossus. And uh, punishment is a fine translation of that word. It's okay. Uh, The original meaning means meant to cut short. And it has the idea of pruning, sort of in the in the cultural background of it. The word itself, Colossus, is only used one other time in the New Testament, in 1 John 4, 18, where it speaks of fear involving torment. All right, and the point of John in that text, in 1 John 4, is that when we come to understand how much God loves us and the love of God for us through Jesus Christ— that fear is cast out because fear has to do with punishment. All right? In other words, what John is saying when he uses the word colossus is that fear and the related concepts of punishment and torment are the exact opposite of what we see about God through Jesus Christ. When you understand what God is like, then you do not need to fear him. You do not need to fear punishment. All right? Because Jesus shows us what God is like and that God does not 
punish us. Sin bears its own punishment with it, and Jesus is trying to rescue and deliver us from that punishment. He doesn't send the punishment, bring the punishment. He rescues us from it. All right? So that's Colossus, and 1 John is showing us. We don't need to fear it. We don't need to fear God uh, in that way. Now, the word Colossus is also used outside of the Bible. I'm sorry, outside of the New Testament in the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament. So obviously, you know the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. At some point, the Jewish people, because a lot of them spoke Greek, decided to translate the Hebrew Bible into Greek so that more people could read it. And that Greek translation is called the Septuagint. Anyway, uh, the, the Septuagint does contain the word Colossus several times. Uh, Ezekiel 14, for example, uses it three times. Uh, 14.3, 14.4, and 14.7. And in each case, it's referring to the idolatrous stumbling blocks that the leaders of Israel had set up in their hearts. God tells Ezekiel, he calls him the son of man, to inform the leaders of Israel that their idolatrous ways would lead to the devastation of Jerusalem and those who lived there. All right, so we're sort of seeing here how Colossus is used, the destruction of Jerusalem. That's a prophecy in Ezekiel 14. A further interest in the context of Ezekiel is that the people of Israel at this time, because of how they were living, were equated with the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. What happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, they were destroyed. And do you know what the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was? Lots of people think that it was homosexuality or something. <laughs> that is not true. All right? According to God, Ezekiel 16.49, Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. The sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was that the people of those cities had lots of food and they did not share it with the poor and needy. Whoa. <laughs> All right? Uh, and that's why they were destroyed. Uh, Ezekiel, God, through the prophet Ezekiel, calls their behavior a shameful abomination, which leads to devastation, destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Ezekiel says, Israel, you better watch out because you are committing the same abomination that leads to destruction. All right, Israel, the same thing that will happen to you as happened to Sodom and Gomorrah, because you have lots of food and you are neglecting the poor and needy in your midst. So the abomination that leads to desolation in Ezekiel is the failure of God's people. That's the abomination to take care of the poor and needy. And it leads to the destruction, the devastation of the city and the nations in which those people live. All right. By the way, Jesus defines abomination this exact same way in Luke 15, 14 and 15. And this is the repeated theme all the way throughout Ezekiel, not just with Israel and Sodom and Gomorrah, but lots of other nations as well. The nations that practice this abominable behavior of having plenty and not taking care of the poor and needy in their midst will come under the judgment of God, which looks like their cities, their nations becoming desolate wastelands. Fire, famine, pestilence, war will destroy them. And sometimes... This destruction is called everlasting destruction or everlasting desolation. For example, look at Ezekiel 35.9. Okay? 
All of this then, and the, the word colossus is used in those instances, okay? So all of this then helps us understand Jesus with the, the parable of the sheep and the goats when he talks about everlasting colossus, everlasting destruction, everlasting desolation. I don't really like the term everlasting punishment, but that might be fine as well. The nations are brought before Jesus so that he might determine which nations took care of the poor and needy in their midst and which did not. And when Jesus talks about that, I'm convinced he has Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel passages in mind. Therefore, notice what this means. The everlasting punishment that Jesus talks about here in Matthew 25, it's not everlasting torture in the pit of burning, flaming hell for all eternity, right? No, the historical, cultural context from Ezekiel, from 1 John, from elsewhere, it's referring to the temporal destruction, desolation, devastation that comes upon nations when the people of that nation do not take care of the poor and the needy in their midst. Now, notice something else, and this is extremely significant. Even though some nations are destroyed in this way, they don't stay destroyed forever. Ezekiel goes on, for example, in Ezekiel 16, to talk about how even though some of these nations are destroyed, they will be redeemed. They will be restored to their former places. So what is destroyed? It's their wicked, selfish, greedy ways that are destroyed. The nations themselves, though, as you know, geographic and political entities upon the earth, they are redeemed and they are restored so that they can, as resurrected nations, continue to carry out God's plan and purposes for them upon the earth. How? Taking care of the poor and needy in their midst. Okay, all of this is to say that Colossus it's best understood as sort of this disciplinary pruning by God upon the people within certain nations, primarily their ways of not taking care of the poor and the needy in their midst. All right? God gathers the nations. This is what Jesus is teaching, Matthew 25, parable of the sheep and the goats. God gathers the nations and separates the people within the nations, one from the other, for judgment. And the Colossus, it's not everlasting burning, suffering, screaming, torture, torment, and lake of fire, pit of hell for all eternity. No, it's a temporal destruction upon their ways and upon the towns and cities of a nation so that those who survive might turn from such shameful and selfish behavior and start doing what God wants, which is to look at the poor and needy in their midst. And as that happens, God will restore redeem, resurrect those nations to their place in this world. Now, here's the thing. How do these nations know how they are supposed to live as God wants? I mean, how did Egypt or Babylon or Israel or even the United States or Canada or Great Britain or South Africa or India or wherever it is you might be living— how do the nations in which we live know that they're supposed to be taking care of the poor and needy in their midst? Here's how, and this really comes down to the point of the parable as well. Our nations learn this by watching and learning from the disciples of Jesus Christ and how we live. 
Okay, such behavior, generosity towards the poor and needy in our midst, cannot be accomplished through laws or courts or presidents or Congress or any other type of ruler. You cannot legislate generosity. Such things are learned only as individual followers of Jesus Christ and communities of Christ followers take care of the poor and needy in their midst, not just their own Christians, but the people in their own towns, in their own communities, in their own families. And as the world watches, as the nations see, they realize, oh, this is how we can take care of the poor and the needy. Now, if we don't do this, then we ourselves lead our nation astray. It is we who are the unbelieving and foolish servants, and it is we who lead our nations into destruction, because we are not showing them God's way of living on this earth. All of this helps us then understand, because that was the everlasting punishment, everlasting colossus. Now it takes us back to this concept of everlasting fire. Basically, the everlasting fire is this refining fire. It comes down upon nations when they're not living the way God wants, so that they can learn to live the way God wants. And so that the way they, the, the evil and selfish and greedy ways they were living is burned away to nothingness. And only the gold and silver and precious stones of righteous living remains. Look, uh, when nations like Sodom and Gomorrah or Israel and Samaria refuse, or, or United States and Canada or Great Britain, whoever, refuse to tend to the needs of the poor, then the Bible says we come under the, dis, the purifying discipline of God until our greedy, selfish ways get burned up with fire. It's not talking about sending people to hell to burn forever, all right? It's talking about the ways of this world getting burned up in favor of the ways of the kingdom of heaven. Now you might say, yeah, but Jeremy, it says fire for the devil and his angels. <laughs> yeah, it does. Okay. And again, this is just contrasting the kingdom of God for the followers of Jesus, the fire of the kingdom of, of Satan, of hell, for the devil and his angels. And I think the best way to understand that, remember, is that the devil is, the Satan is the ruler of this world. Uh, we read in Ephesians and 1 Corinthians and other places that uh, Satan is the god of this age, the spirit of the air that is at work in the sons of wickedness. And so uh, Satan is the accuser, the slanderer. And this world is guided or directed by this spirit of accusation and slander. And that is how the world rules and operates and functions. I've written a lot about that in a couple of my books, this mimetic theory, sort of. And you can go read some of those in The Atonement of God and also primarily in my book, Nothing But the Blood of Jesus. Um, but uh, so, so Satan and his angels are what sort of guides and directs the principalities and powers of this world, the power and authority that leads this world into the ways of fire and death and destruction. Right? So that's what, that's what Jesus is describing as the fire for the devil and his angels. Sort of like the fire of the devil and his angels or something like that. All right? The fire prepared for the devil and his angels is just the fire of discipline. When Jesus is going, going to prune the wicked and greedy and selfish ways of Satan and his angels out of this world, so that by God's Spirit, through the church, the nations can be guided and taught to live as God wants. 
right? So that just sort of helps explain this part. The parable of the sheep and goats. Look, it's the last part of this Olivet Discourse. It's Olivet Sermon or Teaching. And also, by the way, is sort of the last parable that Jesus teaches before he's crucified. And so I think we could even say that this final parable summarizes all of the other parables as well. All the parables that Jesus told lead us up to this point, show us how to live, tell us, look, it's up to us Christians to lead the world into the way we are supposed to live. And that just brings us to the application of the Olivet Discourse and this entire passage. How are you going to live? How does Jesus want you to live? If we live for Jesus, if we want to love and serve Jesus, we do that uh, not by Bible study and attending church services and raising our hands during worship songs or putting money in a plate. We love and serve Jesus by serving and loving the poor and the sick and the imprisoned. These are the least of these, my brethren, that Jesus talks about, wherever they might be found. And and Matthew 25, these three stories are not about some future judgment, not about some threat of hell burning, screaming forever, forever in a pit of torment. No, this is a call for us to choose the way that we will live. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Are you going to serve the ways of the kingdom of God? And take care of the poor and needy in your midst? Yeah, the kingdoms of this world won't like that. They might condemn you even for it, like that third servant in the parable of the talents. Or are you going to live the ways, according to the ways of the kingdoms of this world, the kingdom of hell, the kingdom of that leads to fire and destruction? Yeah, you might enjoy life for a while, get praise and honor, like those first two servants in the parable of the talents from the rulers and kingdoms of this world, but that won't last because our king, our true king, Jesus, our Lord and master, will be displeased about how we led and showed this world the right way to live. Here's the bottom line of what Jesus is teaching in this entire passage. It's Jesus is saying this, if you want to find the kingdom of God and live within it, then you need to follow me and live where I live. And where is that? It's with the poor and needy. So go, serve and minister to them, and you will be serving and ministering to me. And in this way, we'll be living within the kingdom of heaven, serving the kingdom of heaven, and showing this world how they too can live in light of the kingdom of heaven. All right, that is the parable of the sheep and the goats, a quick survey of the Olivet Discourse, and also a brief explanation of this concept of everlasting fire and everlasting punishment in Matthew 25, 41. It, uh, it's not about going to hell when you die. It's about how we can live in light of the kingdom of heaven here and now in this life and lead the world in this way as well. Those who live this way, though they live for themselves, Those who live according to the ways of this world, though they live for themselves, all that they've worked for and all that they've strived after will ultimately, finally, be burned up away into nothingness. doesn't mean they're necessarily going to go to hell. Passage isn't about that one way or the other, right? Just showing that they're living for emptiness and meaninglessness. 
We, though, as followers of Jesus, want to live for things that will last, things that are significant. We want to live for Jesus. And so we do that by taking care of the poor and needy in our midst, just as he did and as he calls us to do as well. All right. So that's Matthew 25, 41, parable of sheep and goats, everlasting fire, everlasting punishment. Hopefully that long explanation sort of made sense to you. If not, look, you can leave a question or comment on this episode at the at my my blog, redeeminggod.com slash Matthew 2541. You can leave it there or message me, interact with me on Facebook or wherever you, you, you can interact with me that way. And look, uh, if you haven't pre-ordered the book, by the time this podcast episode goes out, you probably want to go get it from Amazon and um, pre-order it that way before it goes out available to everybody in the first week of June uh, before the price goes up, okay? And get the paperback that way too. Doing that, it's not going to help you, not only going to help you because you'll be able to read the book and find out what the Bible teaches about hell, but also you are supporting me and this podcast and my work as well. And I really do appreciate it. I am so thankful for all of you who buy my books and spread the word because that's what keeps me going. That's what pays the bills for the podcasting and the blogging and even the books I write. So thank you so much for those of you who have done that. I really do appreciate it. Thank you for sticking with me through this podcast episode as well. Next week, we're going to be diving into a passage out of Mark, Mark 9, 42 through 50. After that, for those of you who have been waiting for it, we'll be talking about uh, the rich man and Lazarus out of Luke chapter 16. So you don't want to miss those two podcast episodes as we continue to talk about various passages from the Bible that teach about hell. We'll be looking at what they mean, what people think they mean, and uh, how I understand them in light of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Thanks for joining me today. We'll see you next week when we pick back up here with Mark 9, 42 through 50. See you then.